Thank you, snowboarding. Thank you, snowboarding. Hey, friends. Welcome to Thank You, Snowboarding, a podcast brought to you by the Snowboard Asylum. This podcast is all about snowboarding in the UK. Who created the scenes? Who pioneered the scenes? Who built up an industry around that? Who trained the young athletes that went on to win Olympic medals and to the point where we have the current world champion in Mia Brooks. It's an interesting story and a crazy story because obviously when snowboarding was deemed cool, a lot of outside influences came in to try and capitalise on that, which led to lots of opportunities for a fairly haphazard group of people I don't think anyone in it would mind me calling them that and I include myself in that as well and it's just telling some of the stories finding out how people got into it telling the finding out the funny stories and finding out what snowboarding still means to those people who were involved and who are still involved there's still a lot of lifers in the UK scene who have really dedicated their lives to to the sport and to the culture and to making sure other people find this amazing experience and who might also make it their lives. And it's celebrating that. It's a celebration of snowboarding, and but from a UK point of view. My name is Chris Cracknell. I am a snowboarder for life. Although I would say in recent years, it's become very tricky with three kids and... A career, I work as a music producer and it's difficult to plan enough in advance to maybe budget to take three kids away snowboarding. It's an expensive sport and I found myself that I have not necessarily drifted away from it through choice, but certainly it's difficult to warrant either taking a trip out with your mates and leaving your wife behind with the kids because my wife loves snowboarding as much as I do. We did lots of seasons together. We started a business in the Alps together. And so just nipping away to do that and the expense of it certainly has made it tricky for me. And I found myself missing it more and more and certainly missing the mountains, missing friends who still live over there. And I wanted to sort of get back into that world. Um, reconnect with friends whom I haven't seen or spoken to in a long time, relive some of those experiences, talk about where it is now and what people are up to and just try and bring some hype back, get myself hyped up for it and hopefully get you, the listener, hyped up for it as well. And we're going to do that by talking to lots of people who were involved back in the day we are going to be talking to people who are involved right now. And we're going to travel back to some of the very first people and people that built the industry and people who, as I said earlier, devoted have devoted their lives to this. Is it a sport? Is it a lifestyle? Is it an art form? All these questions hopefully will be answered. And I'm hoping to get stoked to go riding myself to make it kind of bump it up my list of priorities in life and hopefully it will do the same for you get you hyped on what is an amazing outdoor experience in beautiful places 
hopefully with your mates or your families and get that joy, bring that joy right back into your lives. So this first episode, I was absolutely stoked to spend some time with Ed Lee. I saw him over the summer at a friend's birthday, sort of drinks down on uh, Hove Beach. And I just forgot how much I like spending time with this guy. Ed is a great person to hang out with. If there's anybody who's stoked on snowboarding, it's Ed. And he really has devoted his life in trying to share that with everybody else. From commentating at the Olympics... He really does bridge the world of the casual observer and the seasoned pro. He knows everything about this sport, but he manages to convey it in such a way that it doesn't make it exclusive to people that are just tuning in. Certainly my parents watch the snowboarding in the Olympics and they understand what's going on and they get it. Ed really is a kind of... He is one of the glues that brings this whole scene together and internationally as well, he also commentates for the Natural Selection, which is possibly one of the biggest profile kind of cultural snowboarding events in the world, run by Travis Rice. And he just does lots of things behind the scenes to kind of bring bring people together. And so I was really stoked that he had some time early one morning, well, early for him and late for me because he lives in New Zealand. Um and we just chatted about stuff and common experiences doing seasons in Val d'Isere and that's where we started I did a season in Val d'Isere a year before he turned up there and on the season that he turned up there I had been spending some nights living in an ambulance in a car park in Val d'Isere in December and things weren't working out for me for that season and this is where we kick off so please Spend an hour or so with me and Ed Lee, and I'll see you on the other side. I do. <laughs> in fucking December, I slept in that ambulance, and it got to the point where I was like, I think I'm going to die. Like, we were changing over gas bottles to try and do the heater and stuff, and like tears pissing out of our eyes because gas was in and drinking Galliano. And it was just like, this, is, <laughs> this isn't going to work. This isn't working. Like, this is the definition of this season not working. But and I was scared for my life, so I sort of went home. But, the, I mean, that what you've just described, the idea that you'd go out on a whim with no plan to another country and just try and make it work. Like, try and fathom for a second the level of passion that you must have had. Yeah. As How old were you then? 18, 19? Um, so I'd done my first season, I'd just turned 19, I'd just finished my A-levels. So going back, I was 20. Yeah. I, I, was the, I went out there, 18 was my first season, and I, same, I didn't have any plan. I was, what drew you to it? Um, <sighs> skateboarding. I'd, start, I'd skateboarded, and then, do you remember High Five? Like, seeing yeah. action sports on TV was yeah. just totally, like, if you saw it, you tried to get, any video, if, if you had a cassette in the video player, it was like dive at the thing and just yeah. press. Like even if yeah, it was yeah, a Wrigley's yeah. ad for chewing gum, yeah. you're like, action sports. It's, <laughs> it's not a mag, it's actually on TV. And High Five had one of the first Nitro videos on it. So Damien Sanders, um, can't remember who else was in it. Pat, Glenn, um, thingy, Ken Ackenbach. Um, and it was all hard boots. But I, I was, my dad had dragged us to the dry ski slope in Gloucester 
Eddie the Eagle was there, so there was a bit of momentum around that. And we'd been skiing at the dry ski slope, and then I saw this clip and was like, you can skate on snow. And then started running through stuff. We, I, we came from a sailing family, and my parents used to take us to the gravel pit to go and sail dinghies. But I'd got into windsurfing as an offshoot of that. And, like... Grand Prix, I don't know if you remember them, Grand Prix had the same adverts in windsurf mags that they had in snowboard mags, and they were handwritten. Hand-drawn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was all the deals and all the prices of all the gear. And, like, I was doing a paper round and trying to buy windsurf kit, the ultimate rich white boy sport. (laughs) Like, I managed to buy, unbelievably, I saved 270 quid off my paper round when I was 13 and bought a full windsurf setup. And... (laughs) Then And I did that through that. And then in the bottom of those windsurf ads, there were snowboards starting to appear in winter and then more snowboard kit would fill it up. And then Snowboard UK and White Line started. So there was this groundswell movement where it started to become more accessible. But that first generation, like, you know it, they were were making boards. Apocalypse snow, like the... They just, they were trying to make it up, but there was more production stuff coming through by the early 90s. And then 93, my mum was a teacher and we'd get, we were able to get snow holidays off the back of the school trips. And we went out to Montgenev and Clavier in the Milky Way system. And me and my brother found some boards and we were wearing these CNA moon boots. And my board had high backs and his didn't. So, oh my God. I was doing, I was starting to link turns and he'd just fall over flat on his back, everyone. He couldn't work it out. But I remember I did a suitcase method off a little side hit and it was the raddest thing I'd ever done. Like, I really struggled with a fly off ramp on a skateboard. And here I was doing methods like second day on snow was just like, (gasps) it was, it was totally new. And I think, like, that that's we're coming back to that passion that drove you to go and chase something unknown in a foreign country. I grew up in Gloucester. There was no, I'd say there was no skate scene. Danny Wainwright was coming out of uh, Stroud, just south of Gloucester. So I'd see a little bit, but it was really apparent to me at an early age, life was happening somewhere else and I was going to go and chase it. So by 16, 17, I was off windsurfing in the summers and you could earn money doing that instructing so i was like okay i'm just going to put the same pieces together for the winter and headed off to val did you have any kind of idea of what that looked like like when you set off like what val meant and what i did like did you know anyone there or is it you just turn up like right let's sort this out then no in the summer i'd met a couple of girls who were older the first girl i met shed claire whitehead is actually now married to my brother. No way. Yeah, really, this is a good story, actually. We, we m- tried to make out once, and it was really odd. Kind of kissed, and it was like, ooh, that feels... Re-. We both kind of looked at each other, we were like, that feels really odd. And it's like, lo and behold, she marries my brother. I'm so glad it didn't go any further. That would be so weird. Yeah. Um, but she, yeah, she was doing summer season, and she said, like, it's epic, you should come out. And I, it was already on my radar, but I knew they were Crystal um, Chalet girls. So I went and stayed with them and 
I, I was sleeping on a tiled floor, similar to your van story, sleeping on this freezing cold tiled floor for Christmas, New Year, with a bag of wine for a pillow and a couple of... Ju- we used to call them junkie blankets, those horrible, itchy things, kind of wrapped in one of those. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. And then it got into January and the head of Crystal Valdezere was like, nah, this ain't happening. Like, you're not staying here for the season. This is ridiculous. So I pulled a couple of those, you know, in France, how they always do the, they cut, they put the phone number on the bottom of the advert and you tear it off. Oh, yeah, and you pull it off. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So I took one of those little things, pre-mobile phones, and rang this number and this goes like, what, you want to stay? And had, my French was terrible, his English was awful. Went and saw him. It was the only room available in town. It was the far end of Ladai. So I trudged down there. Oh, man. And this guy's there. And he put on a good show the first time, but it became apparent really quickly that he was a junkie and that he was supplying Valdezair with... I don't even know. I don't think it was crack. I think it was heroin. Um, but it was awful. He'd, I'd walk back there. I'd try and stay out of this house as long as I could. He was a tattooist. And he'd be right. high, tattooing people... The, there was one, and it was supposed to be a tiger jumping through some bamboo, <laughs> and it looked like a Teletubby falling through one of those plastic door sheets. It was so bad, and he was always—he desperately wanted to practice. So whenever I was there, he was like, "Hey, tattoo you," and I was like, "No, no, no! Like, please, no!" <laughs> Run out the door. I'd stay at Dick's until as late as I could, and then I'd get back there. Him and his mates would be getting cooked when I'd get back at two in the morning. So I'd knock on the door and he'd, be, he'd never give me a key. He'd be like, oh, my, my grandma is staying in your bed. You have to go somewhere else. So I'd sleep in the corridor. It's horrendous. Two weeks after this, the police come, the gendarmes, it's pretty obvious what he's doing. The gendarmes come down and clean him out and he rats out everyone in town that he's been buying off and selling to, except me because I haven't touched any of his stuff. But the police had had him on, under surveillance. Like, bearing in mind, I'm like, I think I was just 19. Police had been surveilling him. And there's photos of me going in and out of the apartment at like oh two in the God. morning. So I got chained to a radiator and questioned for two days. In the, and for some reason, like, still to this day, I'm like super pumped on snowboarding. I'm still having a time <laughs> of my life. But You should have PTSD. <laughs> So I got got beaten up, but I had we'd built a really strong crew of mates, and there there were five people living in a twenty six square meter apartment like studio, so there was no room for me there. But they were supporting me and helping me, and we all got picked up. I mean, and I'm not going to pretend that I was a model citizen, but I definitely wasn't dealing heroin. So the police didn't have anything on me, um, but they didn't. Like, it was still that, it's difficult to describe, isn't it, how anti-snowboarders resorts were at that stage. Yeah, totally. Like, it was, I mean, that was... hated us. Like, hated us. Yeah. Yeah, and it was how other snowboarders were, like, instantly your friends. Like, that's how I got a job, because a guy called Al that worked for Ski Val had an SS20 T-shirt on. And I was like, I bought my board there. And he ended up being like the conduit through which we stayed for the whole season because he knew everybody. And then when somebody said, oh, we need a couple of guys to do this, it was just like, yeah, Chris and Matt, go on, off you go. And we were sorted, you know, like we were going to have to go home the week later because we'd run out of money. 
And then all of a sudden, it just everything shifted, and we were there for the season with season passes. And it was like, you know, you can live in the cellar of this chalet. I was like, I don't give a shit. Yeah. I just want to be here. I want to go snowboarding, and I want to go out at night. And that's all I want to do for six months. It's... It's it's pretty intoxicating when you put it like that. And that's exactly what it was. Like, zero responsibility. Just put some food in your mouth every day. It's a bit like those reality survival shows you see on TV now, (laughs) except it's how much alcohol can you consume and still snowboard the next day. Yeah, when I, I remember after I got back from my first season, I was in sort of the local town near me and there was somebody doing one of those like um, surveys in the street. And she was like, yeah, can I ask you about, you know, like I'm doing a survey on behalf of like some alcoholic brand or whatever. Which of these drinks have you had in the last month? And I was just like, yep, 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 yep. She's like, how many units are you consuming in a week? It's just like, yeah, you don't even, there's no way of counting that. It was just insane. I had such a weird, like, you know, kind of that, that end of the season, especially in somewhere like Val, that is a complete bubble. It's well, Coming out of that was horrific. I had four years where I'd go to Greece as a windsurf instructor from mid-April to... Like, I'd, I could deliver some boats around the Med for them. I could usually string it out till about mid end of October. Then I'd go and work for Chris Hart in Noah's Ark in Stroud. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do Tam Tuesdays until mid-December, and then I'd leave for the mountains. But we had a doctor came out on... It was Sunsale, the company uh, that I was working for in the summers. And there was a doctor came out. And, I mean, I worry about this now. I'm probably not going to make old bones. He At the end of the week, he'd look, he came up to a group of us, and he was like... I've been watching you all week and and looking at your alcohol consumption, and I think conservatively you're all consuming over 120 units a week. (laughs) I was like, well, this is just what we do, and we do it most... Like, you'd have a little bit of time off when you were saving again, but the the problem was in, in... I think in the mountains, unless you knew someone at Dick's or Bananas or the Hard Rock Cafe or Playback... You probably yeah. couldn't actually drink that much. It was so expensive. No, it was so expensive. You'd just get tanked up before you went out and then stay out as long as it lasted. Yeah, we had subsidised... Well, that, that was our method anyway. We had a subsidised bar tab uh, in Sunset, which was the problem there. But I had some... I used to run a quiz night in GJ's, one of the bars. Oh, yeah, And, yeah. like, the prize was a bottle of vodka. And I met... There was a gang of Kiwis came out in 96... And they'd preload so heavily. I used to try and get them the vodka. Like, I'd try and load the whole quiz for the Kiwis to win. But they'd have preloaded with bags of red wine before they turned up so badly that no matter how badly I rigged it in their favour, they couldn't physically communicate, <laughs> like, write or stand up to win the quiz. It, was so, it became a running joke, like, OK, how basic and how Kiwi can I make this quiz and you still lose? <laughs> how did so you did like what four seasons in Val when did sort of things start changing for you so that it sort of became actually like hang on a minute I'm quite handy at this um, or or I want to do more with this really this is this is really embarrassing so in that exactly that survival mechanism of I want to do this I'd worked out that I was working at Noah's Ark riding at Tamworth 
I could do a backflip at Tamworth, but I knew deep down that I was pretty mediocre because that was when you turned up at Tamworth on a Tuesday and the whole of British snowboarding had travelled from every corner of the country to go and meet there. And you'd have Danny Wheeler, Russ Ward, Stu Brass, Steve Bailey, Chris Moran, like Duncan Carr, Joe Rackley, and, and all of everyone would be there, like baby Tim Warwoods and Gendals. And I had a shifty yeah. late backside 180 and I had a backflip that I could get away with on there. But it was, I knew where I was at, but I still, I got a, sh there was more money than there were riders in the UK at that stage, seemingly. And Chris Hart sponsored me, so I had Noah's Ark patches and I got discount Burton gear for my first season. And I turned up out in Val and obviously was total shit compared to the seven or eight other people who were there and riding and had been riding regularly. So I had this awful, like, I can tell Chris Hart this now, but I unstitched the patches off my gear. I was like, I cannot even look like I'm sponsored here. I was so embarrassed that I'd got sponsored. But I worked hard at it, and I, I don't know. Like all of us, like I was okay, but I definitely wasn't. I'm, I'm actually, I'm probably better now than I ever was as a kid. I was a lunatic when I was a kid, but it would have looked this. I've got a video somewhere. I look disgusting. <laughs> Arms you everywhere. You don't need to look back at that. Oh God. Um, but I'll send you. I'll send you one clip so you can chop it out for this. Which it's, is great. The, the music alone is worth it. It's so awful. But it was kind of finding your way, and there, there was so much opportunity. I think that was the thing. And if you commit to something, that was it. I, I remember when I started working at White Lines, I, I basically I got to a certain level and I injured my, my knee, broke my knee, classic ACL. But it was, I then, I'd been travelling a bit I'd managed to... My dream had been to go to Alaska and enter the King of the Hill. Oh, that's right. You went to go and do that, didn't you? Yeah, and I was so proud of that. And I, I look back at it and I think somewhere subconsciously I let myself get hurt because I knew I'd kind of risen as far as I was going to go and I needed to find something else within snowboarding to do. And I think... If I'd have gone and done the physio, my leg would have been fine. I know that now, but I didn't understand physio at the time. I just thought my leg hurt and that surgery was going to fix it. So I was quite fatalistic about that, but it led to white lines. But it's that, I think if you've got a passion, no matter what it is, it, you'll make it work. And when I, when I was at white lines, we got so many letters and I spoke to so many people who felt quite aggrieved that it was a closed shop and that there was this um, yeah. kind of, the, these people who kept an arm around snowboarding and it wasn't the case and it never has been in any of those sports. Those people just didn't, didn't go out and make those sacrifices was, or maybe socially they didn't bond with people as well. But if you made friends easily and if you were out there, it happened for everyone that I met. Whether they were good or bad at snowboarding, it wasn't an exclusive club. It was, are you willing to make the sacrifices? Like, basically, have no yeah. money, sleep somewhere yeah. disgusting, just so you can do this every day. Yeah, 100%. Oh, that's, uh, that would definitely mirror my sort of experience of it. Yeah, and if you if you put the if you made those sacrifices, then you were part of it, 
And that was, that was the only barrier as far as I was concerned. And that's what I'd explain later. I was like, just go and do it. If you go and do it, you'll meet everyone and it will be there. Yeah. The, I think if in defence, and this goes for anyone of any ability, I think the only exclusive thing that happens is when you know that the best group most of the time is, if there's good powder, is three to six people. If there's good snow, you only want three to six people. Otherwise, it all just, any less and you can maybe be a little bit exposed, any more and it just becomes a zoo. Unless it's spring laps on a big lift and you just, there's 40 of you. Um, but, yeah, my, I think that, I think that maybe could be, you could accuse people of getting exclusive when you're trying to build riding groups and you sort of, Trying to dodge people, yeah. but but that's just more kind of. I mean, that does come down to sort of experience and ability. Because if you're putting yourself out there, you want people around you that understand what you're trying to do, and you understand what they're trying to do, and you've all got each other's backs. Yeah, and and you get, when it comes to building that kicker, you're all on the same page. One of my favourite stories about kicker building. Have you ever heard this one? When two of the like for me, the two people who went biggest. Gumby and John O'Verity built a kicker together. And John O's got fucking balls of steel. Like that, like he literally prides himself. Whatever he lacks in style, he's like, I will just go bigger than you. But yeah. Gumby was the, uh, like you were there at that British <laughs> chance when Gumby cleared the whole jump and landed flat on the piece. <laughs> yeah. You can go and read about that anywhere. But th so those two got together and John O said they looked at this role and John O was looking at it and he was like, okay, it's about. Solid 18, 20 meters to the knuckle there. And we'll go. And then Gumby's like, yeah, so we're going to. And they thought they were talking about the same landing. And John was like, yeah, we'll build the kicker up to about here, head height. And Gumby was like, no, 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 we're going to build it. And Gumby pointed like double head height. And Gumby was looking at the landing after it. John was right. like, oh shit. So with Dan Milner, they build this <laughs> Leviathan kicker. Gumby goes first, as he always wanted the first landing, does this rodeo frontside seven and, like, bomb holes it. <laughs> and Jonathan's like, okay, my turn. So Jonathan went in, got the biggest sequence he ever got. He did a switch backside five. And he said he did this switch back five. He'd never been in the air so long. He stomps it, said he had enough time to stomp it and then ride and settle himself. He'd got control and then he hit Gumby's bomb hole and tomahawked. <laughs> <laughs> and that, he realised at that point he's like okay I'm not going to go bigger than this guy <laughs> no Gumby's a fucking menace wasn't he but he was a classic example of if you don't break like he was he's he's a good snowboarder but he wasn't a great he wasn't like Terrier naturally talented and he just put the 10,000 hours in and became a big and because he didn't break I saw him take the most horrific slams, but nothing seemed to break. So he got away with it and he got good. So where sort of did snowboarding go for you? I mean, you went over to Maribel with all the... Did you go to Maribel with the White Lines lot? Yeah, that, that? Was, that was a lost season for me. That was, that was when... Like, it's like, um, you know, the Black Sabbath quote where they said, we started out as a music band dabbling in drugs and became a drug band dabbling in music. <laughs> like... I was a snowboarder dabbling in partying in Val d'Isère. Yeah. By the time I yeah. got to Maribel, I was a partier dabbling in snowboarding. I'd broken my knee, was kind of coming back from it. And I was, 
starting to immerse myself in white lines. And then the whole lot, the reality came crashing in. I lost a really good friend in an avalanche and it was the first time. And that, that really changed my perspective in terms of, I know I love this, but, and it had been that ignorant bliss in the background. You knew about avalanches, you knew it was dangerous, but I'd never seen it firsthand. And that season in quick succession, it was uh, Dilly, Catherine Ovington. Of course, yeah. And then straight after that, Martin Addison. Like two oh, in yeah. one season. And it was, he was end of the season in, uh, was it Dubai or Countertown, I think? One of those. But yeah, that was, it's like, oh God. And that, that really woke me up. But at the same time, it, it, what was a strong community really galvanised at that point. And I was in Meribel rehabbing my knee. And I remember what had been good friends through Valdezair, through Meribel, it started to link all of those, that experience started to link everyone. We became a lot closer in the trauma of that. And... I'd say what what was my life before that anyway became something much, much stronger after that. And then yeah. I started, that was 98, 99, and I'd started at White Lines. And then with White Lines, with Matt, Chris, Nick, like yourself, like everyone who contributed to that, it became a very, a much broader, bigger community. And it, yeah, it... it it's given me my career. It's given me all, almost all of my best friends. It's given me my wife. It's what we do as a family to stay together. It literally is the glue for my entire life. It's, there's, yeah, I don't, know, I don't know where I'd be without it. That's quite a nice thing to know. <laughs> but I think that, like, certainly for a lot of people of that generation, it happened. But the hard part that I see, and I've, I feel insanely privileged to have had this, my work has let me stay in it, but I'm not yeah. in any way blinkered to the fact that when you have young kids, the cost of staying in it, if you sacrificed all of those years that we probably should have been at university, you're probably struggling then to generate the income to then take your kids away. And it's... Like it's, I've watched a lot of friends who are super passionate about it. I think also it's the time thing. It's a, it's a really hard thing to get on board with, but it's, yeah, we, we kept making some sacrifices in terms of like, I say we, maybe it was more the kids, but we, we've actually done seasons with the kids and it was brilliant for Sean and I, my wife, but really hard on the kids. Yeah. How do you how do you sort of uh I mean obviously you can put an element of that down to you know it's kind of your work revolves around a certain aspect of it so that gives you sort of that reason I, I do you know what I think the key my work does but the key reason probably the biggest thing is that Sean my wife is as much if not more of a frother on snowboarding than I am so as a pair, like, I think a lot of people, and I, I remember watching this vividly in our late 20s, early 30s, where people would get girlfriends or boyfriends and the partner bought in to the, to the glamorousness of it. But those sacrifices we talked about earlier, 
like the, the idea that most of the time you didn't have your own room. In fact, you were probably sharing with three or four people. <laughs> like it didn't, what, what looked great in a magazine in summer when they hooked up, when they went out and did the season and it was filthy, dirty, and all there was was snowboarding. A lot of people, if there was that push me, pull you of, well, that's kind of rad and I want to do it for three months, but I'm not going to do it. On, like, this is an, on, an ongoing thing. And a lot of people got pulled out of snowboarding that way and then kind of settled down or the relationships exploded spectacularly um, <laughs> and people yeah. survived doing it. But, yeah, it's, I think I'm, I'm, not, I, I'm not at all blinkered to the fact that Sean, Sean's shared passion with this, the fact that... She, rec- she was working recruitment in London and recruited herself to Geneva just so she could keep riding. It's like, okay, I've got to have a fairly serious job, but I'll just... She saw a job come up in Geneva and was like, I'm going. And she'd go... When we met, she was, she'd take herself off on the train and go and ride Engadin or go and ride Chamonix or go and ride uh, Verbier, wherever it was, on the train on her own at the weekend. So meeting her and having that was just... That was a dynamite recipe for me to be able to stay, like just whatever it took, stay in snowboarding. Yeah. Yeah, I think I had a fairly similar experience. Lucy really, she really got into it. She was going to go to Mexico for six months when we met. And I was like, well, I'm going to go and do a season. There's a, you know, there's space if you want to come. And, um, you know, she was like, okay, let's go and do that. You know, she'd never seen the mountains before. And just sort of turned up and then all of a sudden she was like, shit, this is all right, isn't it? And then, you know, and then we ended up having a business that, you know, she she was all in on the business and everything like that. And I sort of feel lucky that we had that because, and we're getting to the point now where she's like, I want to go snowboarding. That's what I want to do. And I'm like, let's go snow, like, let's make that happen then because we both want it. I th- you know, I th- there's, no, there's no push and pull between I want to go on a hot summer holiday or anything like that. It's like, we want to go to the mountains. Well, that's no coincidence. Like, the world we live in now, what we've just discussed for so long is this simpler time of your 20s where there's no... Don't have any responsibilities. Don't have to... Um, like, you could make all those sacrifices. There was literally no thought beyond a week like if, or I mean, maybe a couple of days if you're really skinned. But there's, it feels like the world is much busier, more kind of confused and divisive place. And the mountains offer, for me, real respite from that. Like it's a quiet place where you can go and escape. And I, I, I say that to anyone. Like, yeah, you can go and sit on a beach, but... Name me anything that you can go and do. Name me another activity or even a holiday where you can go with all your mates or you could go with your mum and dad or you could go, you could go with your kids as well. Like, I regularly see three generations and it's not like they go and do that thing for an hour. It's not like you go bowling for a bit and then you go back to the hotel bar and sit on the beach and, or in the pool. You are you're out burning around laughing at each other exploring, pushing each other for six, seven hours a day in this insane environment. And it doesn't matter how good you are, it's, it's that, that environment and that social aspect is so difficult to find anywhere else. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, it that's it's the same for me. Partly it is to do with like look at the mountains, look at what's around you. Do you know what I mean? Like growing up in Crayford, like southeast London, and seeing the mountains for the first time, I nearly shit myself. I was just like so happy. Well, it's to why- believe that I this boy was in that world. Do you know what I mean? It was like, wow, fucking hell. Anyone can do it. It's why Dan, um, do you know the Snow Camp crew? Yeah. Yeah, so Dan, who runs Snow Camp, has, is taking vulnerable kids out to the mountains on these scholarship programmes. And the whole idea, like, it's, it's literal. It's broadening your horizons, showing you that that world exists. And I think that's the power of it. No matter who you are, where you come from, what you do, go out there and you can find real escape, I think. That's, that's, I'd say that to anyone of any age from anywhere. Like, it's, that's the joy of the mountains for me. 100%. So, there's a few sort of more random questions. I want to know kind of... What is is the sort of maddest maddest situation situation snowboarding has put you in? I think, like, going to Alaska when I was 21 was an eye-opener. I went for the King of the Hill. What was at the time the closest thing to the Freeride World Tour or Verbier Extreme? That That was a long way out of my comfort zone. And I met some insane people. But the... The BBC, when I first started at the BBC, they didn't really know what to do with me. They got Ski Sunday and it was covering racing, but there were no snowboard events with the production value on the events, like the broadcast, to put on TV. I was learning about that as I went. I was like, yeah, we could do the Roxy Jam. And you go and there were like three cameras there and they're like, we can't put this on TV. So I started... In the off-season, I was, um, Sean and I were married, we were living in New Zealand, and I was going, did some stuff on snow park, and I did, uh, you can go skateboarding, snowboarding, and surfing in a day. And I think I made these for like 400 quid. Like, paid a cameraman, hotel rooms, and they were just like, I think they couldn't believe it. Well, this isn't bad quality TV. They know what they're doing, and it's interesting. It's kind of guerrilla stuff. So I did those two, and then they said, this is brilliant. What else do you want to do? So I literally, I couldn't believe it. I sat there and just made a list of everything that we couldn't do when we were at White Line. So I was like, I want to go to Iran. I want to go to Morocco. I want to go to Russia. I want to go to, and just wrote this list. And they were like, hit it. What can you do? So started learning to produce off the back of that. Like, okay, how do I actually go to Russia? So got some, and the, the Moscow one was the mad one. Matt Barr had actually come up with the kernel of the idea and I stole it and I apologised to him <laughs> profusely for this. But it was, I think, I, I actually think he would have struggled knowing what I went through now. I only got in and set this up by using the BBC uh, correspondent in Moscow. Right. And it was Putin at the time, this is 2007, Putin had given mine permits out to uh, oligarchs in Siberia if... Because it's Putin, actually... The reason he built the Sochi Olympics is because he loved winter sport. He was a cross-country skier. So he'd right. gi- he was giving out mine permits if you built a ski resort. So there were chairlifts popping up all the way through Siberia. And 
we started looking at, okay, we can make this happen. We could go Siberian Express from Moscow into Siberia and then go snowboarding there. And the BBC correspondent sorted out a load of stuff for us, got all of these permits and lent us his boyfriend as our fixer. And his name was Val. And this is 2007 in Russia where the official line on any kind of LGBTQ plus culture was, it doesn't exist, there are no gay people in Russia. So we've got this amazingly camp fixer called Val. <laughs> I'm like, we get there and he's, he's awesome, he's the funniest kid. And I'm like, but we, we, any roadblock we come to, I'm like, Val, can we film around here? He's like, yeah, no. It's like, is that yes or no? And like anywhere we go, it's like, can we change the train tickets for tomorrow? Yeah, no, sorry. So we have this completely ineffectual period in Moscow where we're like trying to get stuff done. I'm like, shit, this is really hard. I was, at the time, my, my well, it still is to a degree. Anytime I'm in those situations where I need to get stuff done, my smile's my first like line of attack. I'd, I'd try and yeah. disarm people and charm them, give them the thousand watt smile. And after a day or two, Val's like, why do you smile so much? And I was like, oh, it's, it's how I like, make friends with people and get stuff done. Yeah, it's yeah, kind yeah. of my, it's my way. He's like, no, no, no. I like, what do you mean? He's like, only two types of people smile in Russia. And I was like, oh yeah. He goes, rich person and idiot. And a rich person does not walk <laughs> on the street. I was like, so you're telling me I'm the village idiot? And he was like, yeah. So I start practising this thousand-yard Russian stare, trying to get the hang yeah. of it. But we ended up taking the, the Siberian Express, me, a producer, and this cameraman who I've worked with for 20 years now, amazing guy, Zoid. And Zoid was as green as I was to this kind of travel, but we knew we needed externals of the train. We're spending eight, nine hours a day well, eight, nine hours in a row on the train, then you get off, you've got 25 minutes while the train stops, everyone gets on and off, all the business is done. So we're trying to get externals of the train. Unbeknown to us, it's local election week in, across all of Russia. And right. they're super sensitive about cameras anywhere. Every time we stop and Zoid gets this camera out, big broadcast camera, and there were little digital ones at the time that we could have used and we would look like tourists. Instead, we got this giant broadcast camera. The first time he did it, this Russian uh, soldier comes up behind him, slips his fingers down the scruff of his neck, yanks his neck backwards and puts his Kalashnikov in the small of his back. So he's like Jeez. bent over, kind of half scorpioned on tiptoes and just getting <laughs> walked down the platform by a Kalashnikov. I saw this and was like, Fucking hell. Sprint back to the train. We're on top of a gantry over the tracks. I'm just sprinting back. The producers are... He was useless, the producer. We sprint back. I just start unloading bags off the train. I'm like, holy fuck, we can't lose everything. This train's going to leave and the cameraman's in, like, wherever he is. This tiny little woman, about five foot high, a babushka who's been looking after us and serving us food, is like... Yelling in Russian. I'm like point over at the cameraman getting, like, frog-marched down the platform with the gun in his back. She's like, Nyet! Jumps off the, pla off the train, starts fucking waddling up the platform. I've got the passports and the snowboards off at this stage. The producer's walks back. He's like, what's going on? I'm like, Zoe's been fucking arrested. <laughs> like, we've got to get off the train. And uh, Zoe, meanwhile, has been taken into the train station building. 
They've ripped his camera off him, got the tapes out. They're just spooling the tape out of the camera. And he'd been locked in a standing cell. He said there was, like, a gap where his eyes were. But he's, like, he can't move. It's like he's been put in a locker, but with an eye gap so they can see him. He He can just about move his head, but he can't move his body. The babushka runs in, just starts screaming at these soldiers... And he said it went on for about eight minutes, this rampage, just tirade at them until they started buckling. And he saw the body language start going, this tiny little old lady yelling at them. Eventually, he gets out, like, explains a little bit. He's like, BBC snowboarding, snowboarding. They come out and look at the bags. And somehow this old lady gets us back on the train before... No way. These, the trains just start. There's no stopping like a four-mile Siberian Express train. It's just going. So we get everything back on. It was insane. And it it got madder and madder from there. Like the level of... There were hardly anyone on the train. Everyone was shit-faced all day on vodka and beer. The... We arrived, we got booked into private accommodation by the under-19 freestyle wrestling champion, who was, at the time, the only person I could find on, like, a Reddit feed who knew anything about Siberian snowboarding. He booked us in private accommodation. We got yanked out of there by another set of guards and sat in front of the mayor, and this tiny little mayor in... What's it called? Sheragesh. Was, and it had snow from October to June, this tiny town. And there was a gulag, a prison and a mine there. And the mayor of this town had got these BBC journalists who'd been staying in private accommodation. And this giant freestyle wrestling champion who'd been an absolute behemoth out on the street, he said something like, to him. And this kid looked like he was about to get disemboweled. Looked like the mayor was going to murder him. He just cowered in the corner. So I went back to the... Um, idiot, I'd use the idiot strategy and just sat in front of him, grinning like... <laughs> and he sat there for an hour and a half, flicking his letter-opening knife, trying to intimidate us, and I just sat there with this grin painted on my face, like... And eventually, he cracked a big smile, and he was like, you stay, you stay in my town. And I was like, yes! Let's... And we filmed <laughs> with this guy for about two hours to stroke his ego, but it was rid- it was ridiculous. One of those situations... Horrific at the time, really scary, but it's the first thing that comes to my mind when I think of like, and it's the story I love telling most. You're like, yeah, and it doesn't because it there's distance between it now. That was what nearly 15 years ago, and it, it just feels like one of those weird stories that you tell, but it barely feels real anymore. <laughs> it seems that there's like um, a sense of kind of rocky up to a ski it's that sense of adventure and maybe a bit of naivety but it's like i just want to you know in your case i want to show snowboarding and i'm gonna go and do that and find out on the way what what's gonna happen do you know what i mean rather than like planning everything and it's like i'm just gonna put my trust in snowboarding and a sense of adventure and it's all gonna work out but that's that's the best form of travel, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I get the appeal of going on a package deal, but we, we never travelled like that as kids. We never did the package deal. So that kind of making it up as you go along, my dad would just load everything up on top of the car and we'd drive off somewhere, find campsites and find good places to go sailing or 
digging on beaches and, and that was it. And I kind of carried that on. And I love now those experiences kind of help me learn to tell stories. And that's all commentary is, that's all presenting is. And we did the Junior World Champs recently and I had the best feeling. So I watched Korea in 2018 kind of get into grips with snowboard culture. And they had uh, really, they had these talented young riders who'd been trained, but they, the coaches had kind of watched Sean White and um, yeah. Sage Kotzenberg and all the, like Jamie Anderson, and were like, okay, this is how you do it, and we're trying to work it out. At the Junior World Champs this year, this girl called uh, Sue Young Hun turned up and she did a backside seven melon like Peter Line used to do them or Noah Selasnik did them. Like melon, a really fucking hard trick on a snowboard, pointing your front leg like that, not turning it into a method with the back leg squeaking out. She pushed it right forwards. Then she did a cab nine double underflip. That really, for in women's snowboarding, one of those tricks that is very easy to cheat. You do kind of 90-degree spin, double back, 90-degree yeah. spin. Came in, rolled it off her heels and went through two proper corks. I was like... And it was, it was there. It was like snowboard culture, snowboard history. She'd done all the work. Maybe it was completely natural. Maybe it was a fluke. The language barrier, she couldn't, we couldn't talk about it afterwards. But she had a giant grin on her face. She loved snowboarding and she was doing it beautifully. And it was like... Yeah. Oh, there it is. It's still alive and well. It's, it's in such good hands. There's still kids who froth over this and obsess over the style and the way you do a trick and the way it feels. And because it's, it's one of those things you do and it's so, you can share it with all your mates, but you can yeah. do it personally when you lay into a turn or when you take off a jump you know when it feels disgusting and inside your skin crawls and you feel like you're going to do a little puke in your mouth because you know it was horrible. And you're like, that was disgusting. I hope no one saw it. And then you're you already annoyed something. by the time you land because you know it was awful. And you're like... <laughs> but then for that moment that you do it and you take off and you float through the whole thing and your hand just finds the edge and you just drift out and there's that that millisecond where it's all just perfect and you're like, oh my God, I did that. And I bet, I bet you, you can tell me, I can still tell you three or four times that that happened. And I can remember them clear as day. Like my memory is like Swiss cheese, but I can remember those moments clear as day. And I still get them. They're not as, it's definitely not as pretty or as big, but you still get them every now and again. Yeah. So what, um, just to wrap this up then, um, I was going to ask, like, what does snowboarding mean to you now? But I'm sort of thinking of changing that to why, if someone's listening who hasn't been snowboarding for a, a while, whatever reason, or looks at it and just thinks, doesn't quite understand it, why should someone go snowboarding? I th- or go snowboarding again? It's... It's really hard. There's, there's a way of looking at it. You, there's, there's a lot of things you could accuse snowboarding of doing. It's, it's like, it's super hedonistic. It's really selfish. It's expensive. But of all the things we've just discussed, like the escape, it's a bit of like, 
Michelle, my wife, is a yogi. She's an instructor and she meditates. Like, for me, snowboarding, like, and sometimes I live in a mountain town now, so I can go for two hours. And that's all I need sometimes. But it's a meditation. I, I can't... When you get up there, there's people... I remember Neil McNabb talking about this. Like, he had a moment where he was, he was in a total whiteout and he was just riding, feeling the mountain. And it was like, it's, it's total escapism. You can go and find a place, like, just for you. And you can do it on your terms. You can do it with your family and friends. You can do it on your own. But it's, for me, it's that pure escapism in the most exquisite environment. Like, why wouldn't you give yourself that? Like, it's, I'm not saying it's everyone's jam, but if you've snowboarded, you know that feeling and you're depriving yourself of something really, really valuable, something that's really, really good for you if you don't go and give that to yourself every now and again. And it, I'm a really, really staunch believer that you, if you want, you can go and spend 50 grand like, that's what some people spend on a ski holiday. But you can, if you know where to look, you can spend a grand. You can go and do it for that. Like, look at, like, Mia Brooks, the Brooks family, look at what they did seasons for, and, like, it's, it's cheap. Like, it's still available out there. You can go and find those deals. Yeah, you're not going to be going on February half term to find those deals, but sure. you can find them. It's out there. Yeah. And, I, and it's worth yeah, it. I... I think it's it's just about having that passion and like that's sometimes you let it go it's really easy like you you've done it I saw Tim and Gendel do it like lose it for a bit and they still had access to it like but every time you go back every time you're able to pull one of your mates back into it if you're listening to this and you're still doing it like grab someone and take them back out with you to see the look on their face again when they do it. And if you haven't done it for ages, go and, go and find that, that, that impetus. Like it's so, it takes a bit of effort, but it is so worthwhile. It, I, I can't rate it highly enough. That's amazing. Getting married. Yeah, getting day, married yeah. to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't know if she'd be quite as passionate about that. Apparently, um, men live five years longer if they get married. Women live five years less. <laughs> I could talk to you for fucking hours, man. Um, thank you so much. Oh, absolute pleasure. That was so much fun. I really fun. appreciate it. Oh, I good, really appreciate it. Good luck with it all. I'm. I'm stoked to have a listen. I think it's. It's a brilliant project. Make sure, make sure in your intro you explain your like you should you got to do it with that. Like I did all the seasons, I worked out in the mountains, and every no one's immune to it. Like the you can lose it if you. It takes effort. It's like a, any relationship. You got to work at keeping it alive. And I did. Yeah. This is I, this is probably a better way of putting it. Like. When I first started TV presenting, I got really blindsided by the fact that I wanted to be a TV presenter. And to me, the, the route for that was back in London trying to become, I was going to say Russell Brand then, probably shouldn't say that now, but <laughs> oh, really? in 2003, like Dermot yeah. O'Leary and um, 
what's her face? Big Brother AD, Davina McCall. Um, those kind of those kind of presenters was where you were trying to head to. And I lost the mountains for three or four years. And it took me a while to realise, like, actually, I refer to this regularly, the wank account outside action sports and specifically snowboarding is really high. And I came back to snowboarding because there are so few wankers there. And like, obviously it, could, it, it shortened my career and then somehow I've ended up on Ski Sunday. But at the time, for three years there, 2003 to 2006, it was like, okay, there's not much work of what I think I'm good at and what I want to do here, but I know I want to be in snowboarding. Like it was a conscious move back towards that. And I think for that's it. It's really easy to forget. And the dust just starts to collect on your memories of snowboarding. And you have to physically go in there, dust them off, like blow all the dust off and say, no, we're getting this book out again. I'm, I'm going riding again. So there you go. If that doesn't leave you frothing for some riding, I don't know what will. Well, hopefully all the other episodes that are coming your way very soon should do the same. I want to send a big shout out to Ed for sparing the time, to the photographers and the people that were waiting on him to finish our conversation. As I said at the top, it was late for me here in the UK and it was very early in the morning for him over in New Zealand. So um, yeah, big ups to Ed and Sean for making the time for that conversation and as I said in it I could have talked to Ed for hours there's so many things that actually as we dug into it so many sort of commonalities especially from the early Valdez Air days that I could have talked about more about my story I guess but that will come out over episodes over the coming months and yeah just Ed has got so many stories I feel like literally scratched the surface he is a raconteur and he enjoys life and finds interest in life so has lots of interesting things to talk about so yeah I hope you enjoyed that that really lit me up when we did this interview um it got me pretty hyped to go snowboarding and the obvious other thing that gets me hyped to go snowboarding and probably you as well is a good shred movie and uh, every week I'm going to be recommending something to watch now the keener eared listener We'll have heard some music at the start of the show and it is a track by Primus called Under the Electric Grapevine, which was the opening track from the 1996 movie Subject Hackinson. And that movie has got a special place in my heart and probably many of the guests that we're going to have on because for those of you that don't know, there was a riot at Sheffield Ski Village And it was kind of that movie certainly helped agitate a couple of hundred drunk snowboarders. And I think the Sheffield riot might even deserve its own episode. It was certainly an event that put British snowboarding on the map. And whether that was a good thing or a bad thing, it's not really for me to say. I can only recall my own memories of it. And it was just eventful and pretty nuts. But Let's not get into that now, but this movie, Subject Hackinson, was kind of one of the first movies that was solely concentrated on pretty much one rider, and that was Terry A. Hackinson. And this bit of music is certainly iconic to that as well. So 
Yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes of a link. I've said link twice now. Put a link in the show notes to Subject Hackinson where you can watch it for free. Kind of see what was actually, when that dropped, it was the cutting edge of snowboarding. And it rightly so did amp up a couple of hundred drunken snowboarders in Sheffield and probably many more around the world when they first saw it. So yeah, if you've got a shred film that you would recommend to the community, if you want to get in touch, you can send us an email at thankyousnowboarding, T-H-A-N-K-U snowboarding at gmail.com. That'd be great. Obviously, I do have quite a knowledge of shred movies, but it might only be for a period of time and you might know something outside of that that might be great that I might not know about. So if you want to get in touch and tell us about a film that particularly highlights snowboarding for you, that'd be great. And also, if you want to get in touch, we want to keep this part of the show open as well for you telling us about your experiences of snowboarding, whether it's how you got into it or what it's meant to your life or where it's taken you in the world. Basically, if you've got an interesting story that centres around snowboarding and you'd like to tell it to the community, that would be amazing. Again, it's thankyousnowboarding at gmail.com and uh, the best one every week we'll read out and that'd be amazing. So that's it for this time. Um, Thank you for tuning in. These are going to be weekly over the winter season and next week we're going to have Melanie Leando who was a rider that sort of burst onto the scene and did a lot of work for not only female competitive snowboarders out of the UK, but certainly just for snowboarders who wanted to take the competition side seriously. She paved a lot of groundwork with her and uh, her good friend, Leslie McKenna. So we're going to be talking to her a lot about that and also just how she got into it and what it means to her now now that her uh, sort of competing career is over. So yeah, I hope you've enjoyed this. If you can, share it among your friends, um, post it up on all socials. If you're listening to on a platform that allows you to do a review, if you've enjoyed it, a positive review would be amazing. Um, we're going to, as I said, we're going to have episodes coming out all throughout the winter. And also want to shout out to the TSA, the Snowboard Asylum, who have put themselves behind this project um, it's totally in line with their part in the snowboarding industry and in the snowboarding community. They certainly also act as the glue that keeps a lot of the a lot of events going and keep a lot of people connected through snowboarding. So big shout out to the Snowboard Asylum if you are after any kit this winter. Certainly go and check them out first. They've got decades and decades of experience under their belts and they will certainly steer you in the right direction for kit. So yeah, that's it for now. Join us next week with Melanie and uh, yeah, thanks for listening. And until next week, we'll see you then. Take care. Peace.